Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. For those of you who are listening for the first time, my name is Julian Carl and I'm CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group. I'm passionate about all things leadership and management, so passionate in fact that I decided to start a podcast about it. And here we are in season two and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. So in today's show I speak with Michelle Gibbings, who is the author of Career Leap, How to Reinvent and Liberate Your Career. As a recognised expert in organisational change and leadership, Michelle is passionate about working with leaders and teams to unlock high-impact choices so they can accelerate meaningful progress and are able to thrive in a complex, changing world. Her work and reputation extends globally as a keynote speaker, advisor, expert facilitator and executive mentor of choice for many leading-edge global organisations. With more than 20 years senior executive experience across multiple industries, Michelle knows how to successfully navigate uncertain and ambiguous environments to secure sustainable outcomes. Some of her clients include ANZ, Commonwealth Bank, Coles, Telstra, Westpac, Spotlight, Orica, John Holland. Now, during the course of the conversation, we explore Michelle's book in significant detail. I start off by asking Michelle why she decided to write Career Leap. We speak about the importance of recognising your own potential and the challenges associated with this. We explore the idea of a career identity and how that can change over time. And then I finish the interview off by asking Michelle about the career reinvention cycle. So keep listening and as always, would really like to hear your thoughts about the interview with Michelle Gibbings, author of Career Leap. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Well, welcome, Michelle, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really happy that you've taken the time to be a part of it so that the listeners have a bit of an idea about who you are. Who is Michelle Gibbings? Who am I? Isn't that a very complex question? <laughs> um, so, in a personal sense, I live in Melbourne. I'm married. I've got a dog, a um, dog called Barney. Um, in a professional sense, I'm a change leadership and a career expert and so I spent many years in the corporate world um, working at senior levels before I set up my business four and a half years ago and I do a lot of work with senior leaders and executive teams and individuals really working with them on a capability level to make sure that they're fit for the future of work. So I run training programs, I facilitate team sessions and decision-making processes I do a lot of executive coaching. I've written a couple of books, one of which we are going to be chatting about, and I do a lot of public speaking as well. Fantastic. So we are actually here to, to talk about uh, your latest book, Career Leap, How to Reinvent and Liberate Your Career. Why did you decide to write it? I had a lot of people who said to me, how have you done what you've done? So I've had an unusual career. I've worked in politics, I worked in the mining sector, I worked in financial services before I set my business up. And even in my corporate career, I did lots of different functional roles and roles that on the surface people would go, 
wow, I don't even know how you could do that. How do you have the skill set to be able to move from working in public affairs to becoming the head of compliance for a bank to then running large-scale change programs? So people often said, I don't know how you've made that jump. How have you done those career leaps? And that was really then the genesis for me with the book to go, how do you help people understand how they can do that? Because it's possible for everybody. And I really wanted to be able to give people a guide to help step them through the process so that if they wanted to make a shift, be it small or large, they had something that could help them do that. Great. So I'd like to start uh, with a bit of an episode, if I can. Throughout your career, you face decisions on multiple fronts. These decisions are not just important, but essential to your future success and ongoing happiness. Regardless of how you feel about your job now, at some stage in the future, you'll need to shift, reshape, or reinvent your career. What decisions are you making to future-proof your career? So the reason that resonated with me, Michelle, was the, this idea of future-proofing. Are you able to share with the listeners a little bit about what they should be thinking about in terms of future-proofing their career? So you can't future-proof your job. There is no doubt through all of history, jobs have changed. They've come, they've gone. You can future-proof your career. And the future-proofing of your career is looking ahead, understanding how your industry is changing, your profession then going, well, what does that mean for me in the context of my life? Remembering, of course, that your career is part of your life. It's not separate from it. And then the choices that you need to make so that you're ready for that. And it's not your employer's responsibility to develop you. It's your responsibility. And so what does that mean when you become the leader of your career and you're the one that's taking charge and making the decisions so that you're ready for whatever the future is going to hold? So the, the, I, as I read the book, I, I realized pretty quickly that it was built around this, this framework, which you call the career reinvention cycle. And I'm always someone that's particularly interested in, in, in frameworks and, and how people create them. So what was your process for just sort of creating the, the, the model and the framework? I'm a very logical, rational person. And so for me, when you go through the cycle, it is really a step-by-step process. Uh, the reason I've called it a cycle is you don't do it once. If it was linear, you know, step one to step five, um, and then it comes to an end. Whereas with this, you know, you do go through the process and then you'll get to the point where you go, I've done that and now actually I need to do it again because I'm going to need to continually assess my career. And so I often say to people at the beginning of each year, great time to do that sort of stock take. Where am I with my life? And so that cycle is something that I have used both in my own life and also with my coaching clients. So it is something that I know works in terms of a very logical framework that you can use to understand where you are, where you want to get to and how you're actually going to get there. But also once you get there, how do you make sure that you're successful in that new environment? So at a very high level, I was wondering if you'd just be able to give the, the listeners the, the four phases of the cycle because I am planning to dig in deep to each, each phase. So what are the four phases? So there's four phases and under each of those phases, then there's another of, uh, a number of steps. The first one is just assess your career. So really it's that sense of where are you now? But as I was saying before, you're doing that in the context of your life so that you're really understanding 
that when I'm going to be making choices about where I go, I'm doing that in the context of my whole life. You then look at how you architect your career, where you understand what your options are, um, and that means you're looking at your skill set, you're also understanding ultimately how much risk, how much learning you're prepared to take on. So you're making an assessment around what type of career and your tolerance and aptitude is for pushing yourself into a certain direction, then you actually go through a selection process. And there's criteria in the book that actually helps you, helps you work through, how do I actually assess that what option is going to be best for me? Then you're building a plan. What's the plan that I need to have in place to actually help me get to wherever it is I want to get to? And then thirdly, the phase around activating your career. And this is looking at your career identity, looking at your social media profile, looking at LinkedIn, looking at the network that you have. What are all of the facets that you need to have in place to make sure you can actually make that leap? And then lastly, it's accelerate your career, which is you've in the process of making the leap or you've already made the leap, how do you make sure you bed down? So you're launching into your new field, your new career, you're landing well, and you're then doing those periodic stock takes so that you can assess when it might be right time for you to actually make another leap. So I'd like to dig, uh, start to dig in deep to each phase and one of the things which resonated with me in in the first phase is checking in to see if you're future fit so what do you mean when you say future fit so future fit is really understanding where's your industry going where's your profession going how much energy and effort have you put into really nurturing your career and have you been the sort of person who always actively seeks new experiences, seeks new learning, you're actively developing a network or have you been cruising, sitting back and kind of just watching the world go by? You know, you might go to work, you do a good job, but you don't actively see yourself as really having a career that you nurture. And so when you're future fit, you know that, yes, the future is changing. I can't change the way technology is going. I can't necessarily change how my industry and profession is changing, but what I can do is make sure that I'm equipped as well as I can be to make the most of that changing environment. And I was, I was really curious when you, you wrote about this idea of the four zones of health. I thought that was something that I, that I hadn't uh, come across before. So I, I wanted to sort of just check in and, and, and see if you can share with the listeners what these four zones are, because I think they're, there's something which people should really be thinking about. They connect to the whole concept of you understanding how fit your career is. And so I look at it through two lenses. Where, where's your, where are you focusing your time? Are you always thinking about the past? Are you looking to the future? And then the second lens is really understanding your kind of energy that you're putting into your career. So are you passive? You sort of sit back and wait for it to just happen or are you actively involved in your career and there's an exercise that they do in the book which actually takes them through a series of questions and that then determines where they sit on this zone of health and they'll end up in one of four places apathetic and when you're apathetic it typically means you're sort of stuck in the past you're really passive in terms of how you're approaching your career and the danger with that of course is that you get left behind the world moves that you're still stationary 
then the other option is where you become anxious and your the anxiety is because you can see that the future is happening, but you don't know how to respond to it. You don't know how to get prepared for it. And so the anxiety is I feel like everything is outside of my control. Then there are people who, you know, they've often had quite a successful career and they see themselves as really actively managing their career, but they're doing it in a way where they're writing off their past success. They're not thinking about where the future is heading and what's changing. And there's a sense of arrogance in that approach and the danger with that is because they've been over it's almost like an overconfidence I've been so successful in the past I don't need to change anything they'll then lose their way because they're not spending enough time thinking about how they need to shift and reshape into the future and the last category is when you're liberated and that's when you've got the right balance between past and present and future and also the right level of energy so that you're really going, I'm taking control of where my career is going and I'm then fit for that future because I know that I'm doing everything I need to do to put myself in that best possible position. And when you run uh, the, the exercise with the, the different uh, people that you're working with, yeah, are you noticing any trends or, or where people are mainly sitting or is it industry-based? Is it uh, executive-level based? Is, uh, what, what are you noticing with that? There's certainly no industry categorization. You can't say that if you're in this industry, you're in this particular area. What I do notice is that people will move through those phases because there are reasons why people might go, actually, I'm at that sort of apathetic where it is just a job and that's okay for the moment because they might have things going on in their personal life where it requires them to focus their energy elsewhere. And so I always say to people, really understanding how this all fits in terms of where you want to get to short-term and long-term really helps you. But you will move through often many of these phases through your career. And so it's you going, I deliberately know that I'm in this category and I'm actually okay with that. But if I'm not okay with it, what am I going to do to change that? In the programs that, that we run, I'm often talking to leaders that don't necessarily fully realise their potential. You've got, a, you've got a whole chapter about realising what their potential is. So I suppose my question is, how do, how do we encourage people to really start to think about what their potential is? To me, it's the should versus the could. And I, you know, if I go back through my personal history, I often will joke is that if I'd taken my father's career advice, I'd be sitting at home unemployed in Queensland. And I say that rather facetiously because my father is awesome. And, but he had a certain view of what my life would be. Um, and, you know, he didn't want me to first move to Melbourne. And then when I worked in a mining company, he didn't want me to live in a mining town. And a lot of that was because he wanted me to stay living in Brisbane. So I was close to the family. Um, but I've seen it time and time again. And even now working with clients, there's this sense of what you should do. Well, you know, it's expected that you should do this because your father is a lawyer or your mother was an academic or, well, that's what people at that level do as opposed to going, well, actually, what could I do? What really makes me happy? Um, and what works for me, for my family or for the life that I want? And, you know, I've, I've seen situations where people get a lot of pressure from people around them. And often that pressure has really good intent, but it's not helpful. 
and that can stymie the career choices that they make or it makes them harder to make a choice that's really going to work best for them. And so when you're realizing your potential, it's you going, well, what works for me? What do I need? And it doesn't mean you do it in a way that's selfish or inconsiderate, but everybody's got the right to have an amazing career. And so don't let the expectations of others box you in or confine your thinking. One of the things I I really liked about the book was the fact that you've put a number of exercises in, I think, which is a a great way of encouraging people to actually do something rather than just read. And one of the ones which really resonated with me was this idea of auditing your personal circumstances. And you asked them to look at four particular areas, which is their purpose, the role, financial position and lifestyle expectations. Are you able to to share a little bit about uh, why they should do that? I think the the sense behind doing an audit is it really helps you go, let's see my career as part of my life. It's not separate to, as I was saying before, and if I really understand What's my purpose? What I want? What do I want out of life? Where do I see myself going? And bearing in mind that purpose can shift and change and evolve as you evolve as a human being. But you're able to go, okay, I can see how these two fit. And I might be prepared to make a short-term or a longer-term sacrifice in respect of my career because it's going to connect with my purpose. Um, if you don't know where you want to get to in life, it just means then you're career becomes almost like a means to an end and that might be okay but as long as you're doing it consciously and going actually I don't really have a career I've got a job the job's a means to an end and that's okay and I'm comfortable with that because my purpose is about maybe raising a happy healthy family or perhaps what I really want to do is just have a job that gives me money so I can travel but then we know that a lot of people get enormous personal satisfaction out of having a career and the accomplishments and achievements that come with that. And connected to all of this is really understanding your financial position because the choices you make in your career are very closely connected with money. And, you know, I say to people, you don't need to be a, to be a millionaire to have sort of financial freedom. But if you are living paycheck to paycheck, and I know for a lot of people that, you know, money is really tight and there's a whole raft of expenses that people need to have. But there's also sometimes situations where people spend money on things that they don't need to spend money on. And so they're living paycheck to paycheck. And that then means that if they lose their job, they're in a really difficult situation, but it also means they've got less power in a relationship with the the organisation or the person they work for and makes it much harder for them to negotiate certain decisions. And so understanding the finances becomes a really important part. And then also that connects to lifestyle expectations because if you've got different lifestyle expectations, are they going to be met or not met depending on the type of job you've got, how much you need to travel, how much money you're going to earn, all of that kind of stuff. So when you do an audit, you really go, here's all of these parameters that impact the choice I want to make with my career. So I'm imagining we've got some some listeners who are probably, you know, they were at whatever stage with their current employer and they're thinking, oh, you know, I'm wondering, you know, what, what, where should I go? What should I do? In chapter three, you ask people to explore what their options are. Have you got any, can you share with the listeners uh, some, some ideas about how can they start that exploration? 
One of the best things to do is talk to people you don't know. Um, start with people you know, but ask them to introduce you to people in areas that you're interested in. The broader the network you have, the greater ability you've got to just hear about things that you've never heard about before. And then you go, wow, I didn't even know that was possible. And so the exploration piece can be fun. Talk to lots of different people, subscribe to journals that you think you're interested in or online news and start digging around. It's almost like you become an investigator and you're investigating what the options are. The more you talk to people, the more the market also starts to know, oh, this person's interested in X. And then that's where you might see opportunities arise because we know, you know, all the research tells us that lots of jobs these days, they'll come through your network. So yes, there's job board sites and online news um, job sites, but a lot of jobs, it's based on someone knows someone and you've been recommended for a role. You, you talk about this idea that skills matter, but competencies matter more. And you, and you link it back to the idea of the, uh, the report that was published by the World Economic Forum, and which is something that, that I'm particularly interested in because of the work that Synergen does. So if people are focused on competency, where, where, where do you think they should be looking? What, what areas are the ones where they should be really looking to build their competency levels? Um, they should Google the World Economic Forum and have a look because they update that report every couple of years. And so competencies, are they're, they're transferable. They're all the things that you think about in terms of how you do the work. So it's not the technical skill in terms of the nuts and bolts of the role, but it's emotional intelligence. It's how you make decisions. It's how you negotiate. It's your ability to connect with people, to build relationships. And what we know, because so much of what we do that can be turned into a process will be automated and done by robots, it's all of those human skills, the judgment, the decision-making that we can't automate. And they're the, 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 the things that are going to be the differentiators for people to have successful careers into the future. And so getting people to understand that competencies are just as important as skills. And yet often what happens is we're still focusing when it comes to particularly kind of lower levels of education. We're focusing on skills. We're not focusing on the competencies. And competencies, particularly if you move into more senior roles in organisations, are far, far more important. I get a real sense that uh, through the book you're really wanting people to be, to be very clear about where they want to go. And there's a line which really uh, stood out for me, which is you want to be clear that your somewhere isn't leading you just anywhere. And I, and I often think that people don't always know exactly where they want to go. So what can they do to make sure that when they decide to, to go, that they are going in the right direction? It is a bit of trial and error. And so it's one of those things where you have to trust the way the process works because there's never any guarantee in life. So, for example, when I left corporate and I walked away from a very big salary to start my own business and I had people who thought I was nuts, like, you, what? You've never run a business in your life. What, what are you doing? And for me, it was like, well, I'm going to give this a year. I gave myself a time frame. I've never run a business. I don't exactly know what it's going to look like or feel like. And at the time that I started, I didn't even really know the exact nub of what the service offering would be. I just knew that I needed to work for myself. But I gave myself a time frame and I said, I'm going to try this for a year. 
And if in a year's time, I'm not earning enough money commensurate with the effort I'm putting in, then I'll go back to corporate because corporate's what I know and that's what I'm good at. I know I can survive and thrive in that type of environment. And so there's never any guarantee that when you make a leap, it's going to work out. So, but it's about being deliberate. So I was really deliberate about the choice that I was making. I am going to go and work for myself. And then I put all my energy into making it work. But I also gave myself a time frame that if it didn't work and I didn't like it, I could go back and do something else. And so that's what I mean about the somewhere. The somewhere was, I'm going to, I'm going to try this. Um, as opposed to, oh, I'm going to put it a little bit of a toe in the water, but oh, I'm not really in. And, and the people who, when they make career choices, typically when it doesn't work out, they're only ever half in. They haven't actually fully committed to trying it and seeing if it works. And so the somewhere is be committed that you're going to try as hard as you can to make it work. And if it doesn't, that's okay because you can reflect back and look at all the learnings because you will have gained new skills new connections, new relationships that help you to go whatever that next step will be. It's quite interesting you talk about this idea of uh, people questioning why you leave a high-paying job in corporate because I've in my conversations with other entrepreneurs and, and business owners, quite often they see risk differently to a lot of people in that they don't think they're taking such a big risk when they do that. And in the, in the book, you, you talk about people's level of risk. And I think it's something which really gets in people's way. So any, any tips on how people can sort of navigate their way through their own sort of risk appetite? I think it's about understanding what is your level of risk and also what's the level of risk of the people around you. So for example, um, I'm really lucky. I've got an amazing partner and I wouldn't say he's got high levels of risk tolerance. I'm, I've got much higher levels of risk tolerance, but he's not risk adverse and he's a huge supporter of mine. Now, if I was doing this and he was really worried about, oh, is this going to work out? That would be hard because, you know, it's a partnership and all of that kind of stuff and you want both, you know, you need, particularly when you're running a business, you need people in your corner who are going to support you. And so getting really deliberate around, you know, what's my risk of staying in this role? What's the risk of therefore doing nothing, not moving? And what's my risk of moving forward? And what could be the potential impacts to my earnings, to health, stress, loved ones, and also to my reputation if this doesn't work out? And then get comfortable with what that actually is, knowing that most things in life that are good have an element of risk attached to it. And so if everything you do in life has no risk, I would suggest you're not pushing yourself hard enough. You encourage people to become master planners as they uh, to really think about constructing their plan in terms of making this career leap. Why, why is planning such a, a big part of it or an important part of it? The planning is important because I don't think things happen by accident. And so often when you talk to people, they'll say, oh, yeah, I just fell into this career. I just did this. I did that. And I think, you know, potentially it's more junior levels when you're starting out in your career. It can often be quite organic. Things just tend to happen. But as you progress and get into more senior levels or you've been into in your career for longer, and particularly when you're facing an environment where the working world is changing so much, you do need to be more deliberate and more planned 
to make sure you're making choices that are going to work for you and work for those around you. And when you've got a plan, it doesn't mean it's rigid because things will always change, but you've got a sense of, okay, so if I'm here and I know I want to get somewhere else, here are all the steps I need to put in place to be able to make that happen. And there's different ways of doing this, but when you've got something that is written down on paper, and yes, writing on paper or, you know, yes, people use a tablet, but there's still very interesting research which shows the correlation between how we learn and what we write on paper. Um, it's something happens. It becomes more tangible, more real, more, this is what I'm doing. This is my commitment and I'm making it public that this is what I want to do. So it's harder to walk away from. So it's really, that's important. Yeah. So it's almost really like a, a declaration that they're, they're saying, this is, this is where I'm going. This is who I'm going to be. Yeah, and also because when you think about it, if you've got no plan, you can go, oh, I'm going to go from here to here, but there's no plan. How are you, what are you holding yourself to account to? What actions do you need to take by? When are you actually going to take it? It's too easy to go, oh, well, I wanted to move to this other area, but things got away from me, got really busy, I just didn't get around to it. Whereas when you set dates, you then have something that you can target and track your progress, where you're heading, where you're not heading, and therefore what you know, you might need to put more energy into something. I've always been fascinated with this idea of identity and particularly around uh, people's leadership identity. And, and you, you write in the book that um, you're asking people to shape what their new career identity is. How do, they, how do they do that? Well, to shape your identity, you have to know what it currently is. And often there's a mismatch. We may have a view of how we're seen. And that may be quite different to how we are actually seen. And so it starts with understanding if there's a gap between how people describe you, see you, experience you versus what you think it is. And also, how does that need to change in terms of you moving into something else? Um, And there's a lot of research which talks about how we connect to an identity that is a career-based identity. You know, if you think about it, often when you're in a social setting, one of the questions someone may ask you is, oh, what do you do? And so there's a lot of, you know, a lot of connection with that. And so if you're you're moving from one profession to another or quite a different industry to another industry, understanding how that impacts you. And often we don't realise what an impact it has. And I know for me, when I left corporate to doing what I'm doing now, I hadn't realised how attached I was to this corporate identity. I'd been a corporate exec, that's what I knew, and now I'm running a business, and what does that mean, and how do I see myself, how am I positioned publicly, and so spending a lot of effort on that. And it's not something that you get in one go, because it evolves over time, and being really conscious of, as a leader, What is my identity? What do I want to be known for? And then consciously crafting that so that you're living up to what it is you want to be known for. So could you almost say that it's this idea of uh, starting to act as if to start to identify the sort of leader you want to be and then start to do those things? It is. And so when you're really clear, I say to people, it's like write your leadership manifesto. Who am I? What do I stand for? And so this is my leadership manifesto of what I want to be. How does that manifesto, is it shaped? Does it change in some way? Because you will be carrying a whole raft of attributes with you into this new environment. But when you're in a new environment, there are things that you can alter 
because people very quickly will box you. And so when you're in a current environment, people will know you for something. Oh, you're known as a strategic thinker or you're the person who gets things done or perhaps you're the problem child or whatever it is, you are labelled and boxed in some way. You're moving to a new environment. You can change that label. And so what do you want that label to be? What do you want to be known for? How do you want people to describe you when you're not in the room? That becomes really important. But you also need to do that publicly as well because people these days will often suss you out, particularly through LinkedIn, before they've even met you. So how are you positioned on LinkedIn and how does that connect with who you are? Because if your positioning on LinkedIn is very different to the experience when the person meets you, there's a jarring. People go, well, hang on, you've described yourself as this on LinkedIn and now I've met you and I, I just, wow, I, I can't see the connection. If you don't look anything like your photograph, how you've described yourself doesn't seem to correlate with what your experience is. So you have to be authentic in how you're positioned socially. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a big fan of LinkedIn and I, I still remember one time where I was connected to someone on LinkedIn and we'd arranged to... Uh, to meet and I, and I went into their office and I was standing in the foyer and uh, someone came out and said, hey, Julian, how are you going? And I realized it was the person that uh, I was supposed to be meeting, but they didn't look anything like their photo. And it, <laughs> it was yeah. a, re- a really uncomfortable sort of silence and before I realized what was going on. Yeah, and look, we have this thing in psychological terms called thin slicing. And what it means is we size someone up in about 7 to 15 seconds. We look at them from the handshake to the eye contact, from what they're wearing, to go, do I like you? Do I trust you? Do I want to do business with you? Do I, do I want to hire you? All of that kind of stuff. So if your first impression is, hang on, you're not who I thought you were because you look so different, even though you're, you're subconsciously processing and you're going, I don't know whether I trust you anymore. And so it's really important. You know, you can have a professional photograph, so you know, you can still be a really nice photo, but it has to look like you. So don't put the photograph up that is you 20 years ago. So I imagine there's some people out there listening who have been in roles for quite a while or been in an organisation quite a while and there's something in them which, which is encouraging them to, to move but they're, they're, they're feeling really fearful of that. You, you talk about this idea of how will uh, they enter the market. What are some of the key things they should really be trying to think about when they're making that decision to go to market? Um, some of the stuff that we just talked about in terms of LinkedIn is really important, but really drawing on your network and understanding who is in your network and how your network is going to help or hinder you being able to do that. But that means you need to start now because often what happens is people don't pay any attention to their network until they want something and then as soon as they think they need something from the network they then go and ask for it but the network goes but hang on I haven't heard from you in many years and you've done nothing for me and now all of a sudden you're asking me to do all this stuff for you why would I want to do that and so networks are reciprocal but they require energy to maintain them and energy for them to be healthy. And so you need to give a whole lot more before you ever ask and want something. And so when you're strategic about your network, it's not being Machiavellian, but it's being smart and going, who do I need to have in my network? How do I deepen relationships? And who do I want to build relationships with? And how can I help them? Because it just happens that the more I help them, then the more they're going to help me. 
But the great thing is when you help someone, when you do something nice for somebody else, we have this kind of inbuilt little happy drug inside us which goes, hey, I feel really good because I've just done something that's nice for someone. And they haven't asked me to do it, but I've just done it because I can. And how cool is that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really liking uh, when you talk about the networking because you give this uh, three-part three framework for successful networking, which is search, scrutinize, and shift. Are you able just to dig a little deeper into that because networking is one of the things which I talk to leaders about a lot. And, and if they're not necessarily looking, they do exactly what you said. They just, they're very, very passive and they don't actually go out to build it. Yeah. And then it becomes very transactional and you can smell transactional relationships a mile away. Um, and it, it feels uncomfortable for everybody involved. So firstly is really understanding, and this is the search bit, you're doing it, it's almost like an audit. Who's in my network? Who's not? And so I often do this activity um, with people. I run a one-day influence course and one of the activities we spend in that course is we get them to build their stakeholder network. And I always get feedback from people I've just never thought about looking at my network like that. Wow, this is really helpful. And so you're really digging into who's in my network, who's in my corner, who's not, and who should be. And then from there, you can consider how do I deepen relationships? How do I strengthen them? Where are those relationships that are perhaps immature or unhealthy that I need to work on? And then lastly, what are the sorts of actions that I can put in place to really shift the network so that it is a happy, healthy, vibrant network? And what do I need to do to actually contribute more to that network so that in the long term, it's going to be productive for all involved? And, and in your experience, do you find that often there's a little bit of resistance uh, from leaders to, to, to put that effort in? to the network? I think it really depends. I often get people who say to me, I'm too busy. I don't have time. You know, this isn't part of my job. And I go, yeah, it is. <laughs> because not only is having a good network good for your career, it also helps you get your job done. So understanding your network and the depth and the nature of your network will help you in your current role, just as it's going to help you in your future role. Uh, and if you look at people who have very successful careers, they will always spend time networking. But it's about finding the form of networking that works for you. I know a lot of people who say, I hate networking functions. And that's because it feels artificial. You're in a, I don't know, a bar or a cocktail setting or it might be over a lunch and it just doesn't feel natural. And it might be that you don't like big group environments and if that's the case find a way to do it one-on-one -on -one. so find the environment that works for you but the networking also has to be genuine and I've seen too many people who network in a way where it's really clear it's all about them they're not genuinely interested in understanding anything about the other person in front of them and so when you build relationships you're looking to go I'm interested in you. you. I'd love to know more about you. And that has to be genuine. So the networking, yes, it's strategic, but it also needs to be done from a place of authenticity. Couldn't agree more. I think you, you really hit the nail on the head about finding the networking uh, method which, which works for, for the, each individual person because we're all different and we, we all sort of feel more comfortable doing different parts of it. But I think the message is let's just, let's just improve on the networking. Yeah. 
So I'm curious about this idea where you encourage the readers to be, to, to really focus and on how they can make each day matter as they get, as they're getting ready for this big career leap. So why is focusing on each day such an important aspect of it? There's a favourite quote of mine, and it's a Tibetan saying, which is, if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. And when you're looking to shift careers, or even when you're just looking to manage your current um, role that you're in, it's easy to get busy. Everybody's busy. You meet someone, how are you? I'm busy. And is the busyness leading to anything that is productive? Um, and there's an American author, Henry David Thoreau, and he talks about, you know, it's easy to be busy, but so are the ants. What are you busy on? And so when you make each day matter, you are really deliberate around how you're using your time. You know, is it aligned with your purpose and the focus, or are you just kind of having those random days where you wake up, the day goes, you get to the end of the day, and you go, oh, have I actually achieved what I set out to achieve? And do I know what I need to do each and every day to help me get to wherever it is I want to get to? And what am I doing to construct and create space to enable that to happen? And that may also mean creating space to make sure you've got time to take care of yourself, you've got time to exercise, to meditate, all of those self-care practices that are really essential for having a healthy career because the two go hand in hand. And that from there, you're able to then prioritize your day. So you're really clear. Here's what I need to get out of this day that's going to help me get to where it is I want to get to. And I'm building every single day a deliberate kind of step of activities to help me do that. I mean, I am by nature a fairly structured person when it comes to my day. And I know that when I'm really busy, the more structured I am with my day, the more I get done. So there was uh, in, in the in the Final phase, we ask people to accelerate. And, and there was something in there which really resonated with me about what uh, some of the things that people should be doing when, when they hit the, they get the new role. And one of the things you, you talked about was this idea of obsess about presence. It's something which I'm coming up across quite a lot in, in different conversations that people are talking about this idea of leadership presence, executive presence, whatever you want to call it. Why, why should they obsess about the presence? Presence is how people are experiencing you every single moment. And so when you walk into a room, the presence is the impact that you're having on the people around you. And you know, when I was talking before about thin slicing and how we size people up really, really quickly, that connects to that concept of presence. Because if you turn up to work and you're tired, you're grumpy, you're disheveled, you clearly haven't had enough sleep, you're not focusing on the conversation, you're distracted, all of that is distracting from your presence. Whereas when you turn up, you're poised, you're focused, you know exactly what you need to do, that's presence. People can feel it because they'll go, wow, that person really knows how to manage a room. And you'll know when a person has presence and when they don't have presence. Now, if you're the person who always rushes in, you're late for a meeting, if you're the person who everything is always a drama, that person doesn't have presence. But if you look at, say, for example, someone like Barack Obama, he has presence. He knows how to hold a room. He knows how to hold space. 
Um, and the best executives and leaders I've worked with, they have presence. And it means there's a calmness to them because, yep, things can be going on and there's lots of challenges and problems they're trying to solve, but it never overwhelms them. They can share how they're feeling. So you've got the humility and the vulnerability and people can connect with them, but it's that sense of calmness where people go, wow, I feel like they've got things under control. So if people want to find out more about uh, you and the work that you're doing, Michelle, uh, where should they go? Uh, the best place to go is to my website, which is michellegibbings.com. And are there any last words on leadership and career that you'd like to share with the listeners? Look, I often think that life's an adventure. Um, and for me, I'm really clear and often, you know, when I'm working with my coaching clients, like I get clear around the sort of motto that you want to lead your life because if you understand your sort of underpinning philosophies of who you are, what you want out of life, then makes it easier to make choices around what you're going to say yes to and what you're going to say no to. Everything in life is a trade-off. I don't buy into the myth of we can have it all and I think that whole myth just makes everybody feel a bit disappointed because I think, oh, wow, I feel really sad with my life because I can't have it all. You can't. It just doesn't work like that. And when you're really deliberate about the choices that you make, you accept that, hey, I'm not going to have that right now, but that's okay because I've decided to do this. And the reason I'm doing that is because it aligns to where I want my life to get to. And I'm happy with that choice because I made that choice. And so for me, my wish for everybody is that really they have the courage and the conviction to make the choices that work for them. For me, life is a series of choices and really understanding how those choices are going to impact where it is that you get to. And I just hope everybody has, um, you know, that they get to where they want to get to and that they take those steps. And yes, that means occasionally you'll feel uncomfortable, but that's okay. Feeling uncomfortable is a good thing. Well, on that note, uh, Michelle, I'd like to say uh, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. All the best. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, that wraps up episode 61 of the Synergy and Leadership podcast. Another great uh, interview with another great author for you there. I'd like to encourage you to head on over to the Synergy Group website and engage in the conversation with us. Tell us what you liked about the episode, tell us who you'd like us to interview, or tell us what sort of content you'd like us to deliver. And if you are an iPhone user, please feel free to head over to the Apple site and leave us a review. Next week's episode is another curriculum ecosystem episode. I'm going to introduce the first of a two-part series all around this idea of emotional intelligence, which uh, more and more leaders are starting to realize is an absolutely necessary skill. So until then, happy listening. Happy listening.